Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced through the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Prior to the 1990s, the sociology of immigration focused mainly on just a handful of major cities where most new arrivals had settled throughout the 20th century. But more recently, immigrants have been moving to new destinations in the rural South and the Midwest, drawing scholars like today's guest, Vanessa Rebus, to closely monitor how race and labor dynamics might be playing out in these smaller communities. Dr. Rebus' new book, On the Line, Slaughterhouse Lives in the Making of the New South, examines these changes through a case study centered around a meatpacking plant in rural North Carolina. Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, Vanessa Rebus. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So could you describe the meatpacking factory where you worked uh, and the community you lived during your research? And tell us a little bit about what the working conditions were like in the plant. Uh, the meatpacking factory where I worked was a fairly large-sized um, uh, hog processing facility in rural North Carolina. Um, by fairly large, um, over a thousand employees uh, worked at this factory, and the the hog processing uh, took place the the entire process from slaughter to uh, further processing of supermarket ready uh, goods. Um, it was a, a fairly rural part of the state. It's basically an area that, small town in rural North Carolina, um, an area that has seen uh, a, a major surge in, um, in migrants from Latin America and Latinos from other parts of the U.S., um, especially since the early 1990s. Uh, the town as a whole, um, or, or the the town and sort of multi-county region where the factory is located um, is interesting because it's a place where many Central American migrants have settled. Um, and it's a key part of the state that uh, where the uh, Latino and Latina migrant population has really grown. Of course, over the 1990s and the early 2000s, North Carolina, like many other states in the South, experienced a dramatic growth in uh, the migrant population, um, and North Carolina in particular was especially um, especially pronounced growth. And this was due to a number of factors that were essentially pushing migrants um, out of traditional destination states like California and Texas and Arizona, and um, the, and pushing them towards other non-traditional destinations in the U.S. Um, and of course, there was also pull factors um, in terms of economic opportunities, jobs, um, um, higher wages relative to the cost of living, and greater ease of housing that also drew uh, migrants to non-traditional states such as the South, uh, North Carolina. And so this, this is part of a, 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 a trend that began in the 1990s and has um, manifested across the South and parts of the uh, rural Midwest as well. 
Um, I can tell you that working conditions at the plant are incredibly difficult. Um, the difficultness of the conditions has to do with the work itself, which is very strenuous manual labor. Um, it also has to do with the working hours that people are required to put it in. Um, in one of the departments where I worked, um, the, the schedule was from 6 a.m. until whenever the job was done. And so this could mean a 12, 15-hour day, five or six days a week, and that was required of people. It was not optional. It was uh, mandatory overtime. Um, in addition, just physically, the environment of the factory is highly unpleasant, right? You're either working in extreme heat if you work on the kill floor um, or you work in extreme cold if you work in the other parts of the plant. Um, so either way you look at it uh, sort of physically, environmentally, um, working hours-wise, the, the job is very difficult. And something that made it even more difficult to bear was the the ways in which uh, workers are constantly um, surveilled and disciplined by their crew leaders, supervisors, and management. Um, you know, there's a very, very, very strict regimen, um, and uh, it could be uh, very unbearable to be yelled at <laughs> for um, for 15 hours in a day. And what were some of the unexpected racial dynamics and relationships that you found during your 16 months working in this factory? Yeah, you know, I was interested in studying racial dynamics um, at the factory um, because from the perspective of uh, so social scientists and economists who study uh, immigration, um, one of the, the established... Um, um, facts has been that um, in terms of the national impact of immigration on the economy, most, most scholars um, argue that the impact of immigration on the economy is, 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 a, is a net positive. Um, and study after study has found that immigration generally um, does very good things for the national economy. Um, but these same scholars um, have always remained somewhat concerned about the impact of uh, you know, uh, labor uh, migration on less skilled, lower wage workers in in the U.S. And in particular, they've been uh, they've always uh, voiced a concern over whether uh, these immigrants compete with these native-born workers. And if so, whether there's also conflict in terms of the relationships between groups. Um, and in particular, what with this shift in uh, migration from traditional destinations to these non-traditional destinations, and in particular non-traditional destinations in the American South, which is a historic region um, that is... Um, known as, you know, as for its um, subordination of blacks and uh, the, the sort of core of white supremacy in, in, in American history, 
Um, so people have, have been especially interested to see if immigrants uh, sort of compete with native-born workers, and in particular if they compete um, with African Americans, um, and if because of that competition, if their relations between these groups are are uh, filled with conflict or not. So I was interested in examining this topic. Um, and one of the things that I would have expected from my reading of the scholarship um, would have been to find that there was a lot of conflict. I would have expected to find that that there was a lot of conflict between uh, Latina and Latino migrants and their African-American counterparts at the factory. Um, but in fact, I didn't find that. And so that was an unexpected finding, which um, I'm able to account for, but is notable for being incredibly unexpected given how other scholars have framed uh, relations between African-Americans and immigrants. Um, I can tell you a little bit about uh, what I did find. Um, I was interested in exploring what the kinds of symbolic boundaries that uh, migrants and African-Americans um, draw vis-a-vis -vis one another. In other words, by symbolic boundaries, I mean the ways in which they talk about each other, the way in which they convey meanings about, uh, about how their group perceives the other group in expressive ways. And so one of the things I found was that um, contrary to what might be expected um, given the literature, um, African-Americans don't, um, don't talk or behave as if they're especially threatened by uh, uh, competition from migrants. And that's important. Um, what I did find was that Latina and Latino migrants um, do express relatively strong boundaries vis-a-vis -vis African Americans. And many times these boundaries have um, what I refer to as a negative inflection. Um, and I argue that this is due to the way in which Latina and Latino migrants perceive their group's position within the workplace. They view their own group's position within the workplace as being the most oppressively exploited as having disadvantages that African-Americans do not face. And because they're preconditioned to view blackness negatively from their origin communities and from their experience in the United States, um, they attach a negative um, racialized resentment to African-Americans. And in contrast, African-Americans don't seem to experience their position in the workplace as any different from that of their Latina and Latino co-workers. So they don't express the kinds of strong and or negative symbolic boundaries that Latinos do towards them. Um, you mentioned that uh, North Carolina is historically kind of a center of, of white supremacy in the U.S. Could, could you say a little bit about how um, whiteness um, operated in the place you were working and maybe what role uh, white supervisors or management had? Yeah, one of the interesting things about this project is that I learned how central 
um, white supremacy and uh, 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 was for mediating relations between these two groups, even as whites themselves were largely absent from this context. Because this is a context in which um, basically close to two-thirds of the workforce um, was a variety of Latinas and Latinos from Mexico, Central America, um, South America, the Caribbean, and most of the rest of the workforce was African-American workers, local people who um, may have uh, grown up in, in the north and come back down, people who may have had roots here in North Carolina but had never, uh, never actually lived in the south and were part of the sort of this other trend, uh, which is the return or, quote, return migration of African-Americans to places in the deep south. Um, and so um, one of the interesting things is that this is a context where whites themselves are relatively scarce, except for in their capacity dominating the um, higher level supervisory and management positions. Um, and so let me give you an idea of how I was able to examine the role of whiteness um, in mediating relations between these two groups. In the department where I worked for the last nine months of my time in the factory, this was a core production department, meaning that when hogs were slaughtered and chilled overnight in the freezers, the next day, those uh, carcasses came down into my department. And my department was, uh, along with the cut floor department, my department was the loin boning and, and, and packing department. This was a large workspace of about 500 workers in one giant room. Um, and um, in this, in this uh, department, the majority of the workers were uh, Latinas and Latinos, and um, Central Americans amongst them were disproportionately uh, represented. The rest of the workers, about a third, were um, by and large African American workers. And the authority structure in this department, meaning the supervisor and superintendent, and below all those, some of the crew leaders, was identified as African-American because the superintendent was African-American, the supervisor was African-American, and at least one of the crew leaders was African-American. So you had an African-American dominated authority structure in a department that was majority, uh, majority Latino and a minority African-American workers. Well, in this department, um, um, workers, Latina and Latino workers, were particularly um, racially resentful towards African-American workers. Um, they thought, they felt, they perceived that African-American workers experienced some advantages um, relative to their experience in terms of being able to escape the most oppressive aspects of the job. Um, they thought that they were given easier jobs. They thought they were given a little bit more in terms of breaks and uh, leniency. Um, and so at some point, 
late in my time, in my, in my nine-month time working in this department, the superintendent was fired. And um, the management replaced the black superintendent with a white superintendent that they brought in from a different company. And that opportunity allowed me to see exactly how the ways in which um, people talked about uh, the, their racial resentment towards black workers when there was a black supervisor versus when there was a white supervisor. And what was interesting was that when there was a white, when there was a black supervisor, um, my, my Latina and Latino coworkers felt that this exacerbated what they thought were the unfair advantages that black workers had and that it unfairly disadvantaged the Latino workers. On the other hand, when this man was replaced by a white superintendent, many of my Latina and Latino co-workers felt that this would bring fairness and um, that everybody would now be treated equally. And some of them, some people even felt overjoyed at the idea that the perceived privileges that African-American workers had under an African-American supervisor would now be revoked. So I was able to see, you know, in, in that instance, the ways in which um, some of my Latina and Latino coworkers perceived whiteness as meaning certain kinds of things, right? And, and blackness as meaning certain kinds of things. Um, and the ways in which our black supervisor had been maligned in um, terms that were racialized, even when the white supervisor turned out to be a, a, brutal, uh, <laughs> a brutal supervisor, um, my coworkers didn't malign him in racialized terms. In other words, what, his being white and his whiteness never became the object of resentment. It was always, uh, uh, but it was always the case with black supervisors that their blackness um, was articulated in um, negatively racialized ways. Um, so in what ways did uh, the Latina and Latino immigrants um, create community and build support networks? Uh, with, within the factory, um, you have to imagine that this is a place where people spend the majority of all the hours in the day. <laughs> and so if you are working 13, 14, 15 hour days at a factory, that is basically your life. Um, and it was interesting um, that all these social functions that you would normally expect to take place outside in people's free time um, had a way of becoming incorporated into the life of the factory. Um, so, uh, at breaks, um, the locker room would turn into a sort of almost like a flea market. Okay. And so people would be, uh, selling, you know, um, sexy underwear or <laughs> Herbalife or, uh, lottery numbers or, uh, a variety of, of, of things, um, and, 
people essentially had all these kinds of uh, functions that you would expect to take place outside the workplace, taking place within the factory. Um, flirtations and, um, and uh, couples have basically having carrying out normal relationship things like eating breakfast together or having lunch or um, having the afternoon coffee. All these things took place within the factory. It was really a, a, a social world unto itself. Um, outside the factory, um, most, most of uh, the people that I worked with at the factory, most people lived in mobile home um, parks, communities. And many people uh, who lived in such places had extended family networks that lived in those same uh, communities as well. Um, so the, the mobile home park essentially became a sort of uh, a neighborhood um, that was, um, you know, rich in familial extended networks, in-laws, um, cousins, siblings, uh, parents, um, and and so um, aside from the workplace, you know, people's uh, people's where people lived was an important um, source of community. Um, in terms of uh, other stuff, that you know, these are rural and sort of small town places, but people also. Um, uh, at least some people also like to have fun. And for these people um, uh, that like to have fun, that could mean going out to one of a number of um, people referred to them as Mexican discotecas um, that were in the area. Um, you might not expect it driving through very small town in rural North Carolina, um, but you would find a number of uh, these uh, nightclubs, and um, they would bring live uh, uh, bands, especially uh, Norteña, Musica Norteña bands, um, banda, and um, people would go and they'd dance and drink and have fun. And so the these uh, these outings were an important, also uh, social outlet for a few people, um, and then finally, um, you know, Walmart. Walmart is a very important place in these small communities, and um, it's a place where I would say that outside of outside of um, the workplace itself is where you're likely to find the most um, coworkers at any given time. Um, so there's a variety of ways that people um, have community both within the factory workplace as well as um, outside of it in their in their residential communities, but also um, the pockets where they are able to find some um, comfort, ease, and fun um, um, in the broader community, uh, being these these uh, nightclubs or um, shopping centers or um, also churches served an important role for some people. How do you think this particular meatpacking plant uh, reflects broader demographic shifts and changes in the economy and work? Well, I think that this particular meatpacking plant is um, not unique in any um, 
in any, any in any sense, right? I mean, I think that um, from what I learned about the many other processing facilities in this whole region, um, from chicken to turkey to to hogs, um, the overall dynamics and conditions and experiences and sort of lifestyles um, are very are very similar. Um, and so although my study in particular is ethnographic and, and very immersed, embedded ethnographic at that, um, I also um, would venture to say that that there's a lot of the dynamics that I observed are um, apparent in other places beyond this specific uh, factory. And that's precisely because the conditions, demographic shifts, the economic changes that have shaped the history of this particular meatpacking plant, which has been around for 60-something years, um, well, the, the same dynamics that have shaped its history, its compositional changes, you know, from the, from the 70s to the 90s to today, um, those are similar um, factors that have shaped workplaces such as these throughout uh, the South. Um, and I'm talking about whether that's agriculture, whether that's in the... Um, many, many, many hundreds of animal farms that dot the landscape in this region, or whether you're talking about the packing plants, the slaughterhouses and the packing plants, um, this factory sort of crystallized many of the um, economic changes that um, brought about concentration and growth of these industries in the South, and which spurred a um, a pull of migrants, both from abroad um, and from other places in the U.S., to fill a need in uh, in uh, in growing industries for more and more and more labor. What are the implications of your research for policy and addressing issues of immigration and inequality? One of the implications of my research um, is, is 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 perhaps not as intuitive as it might as it might seem. Um, the uh, my view is that um, while immigration reform is urgently needed, and um, and is currently, I mean, at crisis point. I, I also argue in my book that um, we need to take into account labor laws as well. And by that I mean there's been a series of court decisions that have um, called into question the full protection of, for instance, undocumented workers under the law. And I argue that this erosion of protection um, of some workers under the law is actually pernicious to all workers because when some workers become vulnerable, they become more exploitable. And when some workers are more exploitable, all workers will suffer one way or another uh, sooner or later. So one of the policy implications that I um, 
address is that we need to expand and extend universal labor protections and remedies for all workers, not just um, authorized workers. Well, that's lots of interesting uh, insights and observations, and I really enjoyed uh, reading your book and hearing about your, uh, your research. So thank you so much for stopping by Office Hours. Thanks a lot, Eric. Nice talking to you. This episode of Office Hours featured guest Vanessa Rebus, whose new book, On the Line, Slaughterhouse Lives and the Making of the New South, is now available from the University of California Press. Eric Cajola hosted today's interview, and the episode was produced by me, Matt Gunther, through the Society pages at the University of Minnesota. If you'd like to learn more about the sociology of immigration or other important areas of social science, check out some of our written content on our website, thesocietypages.org.